This is ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. I'm joined today by Dr. Vincenzo Bergella. He's president of the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine and professor of OBGYN at Thomas Jefferson University School of Medicine. Dr. Bergella, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So why don't we start right up with uh, some updates from your perspective as president of SFM. Tell us a little bit about what's going on. Yeah, the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine has been around for 40 years, but we went, just went through uh, branding initiatives. And I think the public should know that uh, we define ourselves as uh, experts in iris pregnancy, anything that is wrong with the mother or is wrong with uh, the baby. And what we would like uh, people to know is that we would love to share our knowledge and expertise uh, in both clinical care, research, and education to improve outcomes for the pregnant mother and for you know, the baby she's carrying. One area that's come up of great importance that I'm sure is uh, center stage for uh, the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine is maternal mortality. Uh, what can you tell us about that from your perspective? Unfortunately, while it's much safer to be pregnant in 2014, especially in the United States, um, there are still over 700 women every year in the U.S. Um, who, um, who die from pregnancy-related issues. Uh, so to put it in perspective, there are 4 million births in the U.S., uh, so many, many women, you know, get, get pregnant and give birth to babies, uh, but still some uh, die. And in the world, there are 287,000 women who die of pregnancy-related causes. Um, so as a society, and really as clinicians, as doctors, just like you and I are, I think it's important to make sure that people talk about this and we decrease, you know, these rates. In the world, obviously, there are many things that we can do, but even in the U.S., we continue to have mothers who die who probably shouldn't have died. Um, and one of the shames um, that, that we have in the U.S. is that our data actually is not that good uh, in terms of how many there are. In fact, the data that I just gave you is from 2009, mm. and the CDC doesn't have uh, more recent data. So what we actually started to do with the American College of Obstetrician and Gynecology, with us at the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, with the CDC, uh, the Center for Disease Control, is to uh, state by state, territory by territory in the U.S., get better a better handle on the few mothers who still die to f- try to find out exactly why they die. Only when we have that data, um, we can do better reviews and work on prevention. Um, I'll give you an example. The common causes of deaths uh, are usually clots, you know, thromboembolism, hemorrhage is still a high cause, uh, preeclampsia is a common cause. But there's still some suicides, you know, there's still some, there's just some trauma. And we really don't have a good handle on those numbers. Some states do better than others, but in some states we really don't have an idea of how many mothers die and why they do. And one guest that I talked to on this very topic likened the idea of, of the push that you're talking about to essentially trying to conduct a nationwide M&M conference to really get a better sense of identifying these cases and find out what could have been done, as you're saying, on a, on a nationwide and perhaps even more global-wide scale. But this seems like a very daunting task, doesn't it? It's a daunting task, uh, but one of my presidential editorial is titled, If We Don't Count Them, It Means We Don't Care. Mm. And I truly believe that. Um, in fact, I've heard a government official recently say that, you know, there's only 700 women dying in the U.S. It's a low number. Mm. I mean, it made my blood boil, to, to mm-hmm. tell you the truth. And uh, it, while it's a daunting task, there are people that work in vital records, you know, statistic offices in every state. Uh, they may be underfunded. Uh, they may not have the right instruments to collect the data. So we need to work 
you know, some of this happened in the hospital, uh, most of them. So we need to work with residents, with fellows, with nurses, with whomever is coding this. We need to work with Nevada statistics people at the state, and we need to work with the CDC. So it's a daunting task, and that's why I really love the team effort that I see growing. ACOG, SMFM, CDC. It's not going to be, you know, you by myself or, you know, me and you together. Um, we really need, and that's what we've done. Uh, we're appointing people at the state level, both doctors like you and I, and the actual staff already working on this to figure out exactly their problems because in every state it's a little bit different. For example, California and New York do a little bit better. Some other states do a little bit worse. And we want to kind of emulate the states to do better to get better data. I see. And while you're doing that, uh, while you're undergoing that task, are you also doing anything to address perhaps guidelines, uh, updates, or um, creating checklists for the clinical observation of patients who are at risk or potentially at preventable stages for some of these these uh, acute afflictions which can happen in pregnancy? And are you addressing the social determinants that come into play when we talk about maternal mortality? Great question, yes. I'm a great believer in evidence-based medicine. And uh, I'll tell you a little story. Obstetrics, uh, years ago, got the so-called wooden spoon because we had so little evidence for what mm -hmm. we did. Um, that's what from the, from the Cochrane, um, a big organization that kind of looks at the best research. Recently, actually, they've kind of patted us in on the back because we have a lot, a lot of randomized studies, um, even in, in on pregnancy causes. Um, and so I thank all the thousands and thousands of women who have participated in these studies. At SMFM, in the last few years, now we have over 60 guidelines um, on uh, uh, pregnancy care, and in particular high-risk pregnancy care, the care of the sick mother, as I said before, or the sick baby. So at smfm.org um, slash guidelines, but you can go to just smfm.org, you will see all of these um, guidelines, which are actually based on evidence. There's a lot of stuff we did for years, uh, which unfortunately has not panned out in this randomized level one evidence studies. And uh, um, we've been lucky to, to work with great experts in our field. Uh, we've been lucky that some of these have been done with ACOG as well. And those guidelines can help not only maternal mortality, obviously, but it can help also on perinatal morbidity and mortality in terms of improving the health of the baby, not just the mom. Well, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and I'm joined by Dr. Vincenzo Bergella. He's president of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine and professor of OBGYN at Thomas Jefferson University School of Medicine. So, Dr. Bergella, why don't we move over to another area of passion for you and um, just change gears a little bit, and that's the subject of happiness with physicians. It's an incredibly... Uh, important subject, but one that, uh, in my opinion, doesn't really come up enough. Even though we hear about burnout, we hear about the other, these other other keywords, we rarely hear the term happiness being applied, and it's an area that you've really investigated. Can you tell us a little about that? Yes. I did uh, recently for myself a strength survey, and uh, my, my number was strengths was learner. So every time I stumble on, on an issue, I try to really go to the bottom of it, and uh, happiness is something the last few years I've researched uh, in depth. I wrote a book about it, and uh, I actually found out there are many also randomized studies, and there's a lot of evidence uh, published in The Lancet or New England Journal of Medicine on, on happiness. And there are actually six issues that really much are the key to be happy. The number one, and by far the most important one, is social relationships and interactions. Then there is doing what you like to do. There's having goals in life as number three, making sure those goals have meaning, 
and I couldn't find a better meeting you know, for us OBGYNs mm. that, you know, improving the health of mothers and babies around the world. Then there is the issue of working hard and being engaged in what you do. Uh, I always say, look at myself as being in flow when I'm doing something that I really like, you know, forgetting where I am, what day it is. Um, and uh, happiness, really, on that fifth point, it's action. So uh, that's a very important point. And the last one, it's uh, something that you would um, relate to. Uh, once you achieve something, getting the pat on the back, getting recognitions, you know, from others. Mm. And I think that relates to a lot of what we do. You can make that to patients, for example. You know, you relate to patients and you ask them about um, different options. And, you know, the, doing what you like to do, it's an important, um, important thing. You know, so listen to the patients first, letting them know um, uh, the options, but letting them decide. The issue of social relationships, how important, again, uh, it is to stop and listen to patients. Sometimes we talk so much, we don't listen to them first. Mm. So I think it's, uh, while happiness, we think of it personal, and I think a lot of those things you could see as personal. Most of our time, or a lot of our time, it's, it's professionally at work. And if we can have strong relationships at work, if we can do what we like to do you know, during our day, if we pursue goals which are important to us and have meanings, uh, and then get recognition for that after working hard, that's happiness. That's perfectly put. And I like how you distinguish working hard from having goals. A lot of times people say, well, if I have goals, that's enough. But the idea of working hard seems intuitive, and yet... Uh, people often roll those two together. They think, well, as long as I have a goal, clearly I'll work hard for the goal. It's not necessarily the case. Not necessarily the case. And, you know, I, I'm not, uh, I don't want to sound like a workaholic or anything like that. You know, a goal could certainly be spending time with your kids, you know, uh, spending time with your partner. Uh, hobbies are a big, big key to happiness. There's lots and lots of studies on that. Uh, but the issue, for example, of giving, it's another big issue. There was a randomized study of Harvard students, um, I'm just remembering, and they were given a sum of money, and they were told in the next 24 hours, spend that sum of money either on yourself or on others. And then a couple of days later, they were sampled in terms of happiness. And these happiness questionnaires are actually very objective. And uh, you can imagine the ones who spend it on others had more happiness. So... This issue of giving in our profession of medicine, um, it's really what should be making us happy um, and having an harmonious life. It makes sense to me. Let me change gears once more because given the position that you're in, you have a front row seat to some of the more cutting edge uh, aspects of what's occurring in OBGYN. Take us through a little bit about what's, what's on the horizon for the field. I'll cover two issues. One is related to genetics and prenatal diagnosis for our babies, and one is related to prematurity, which is our number one killers of, of babies, unfortunately, still in the U.S. and, and, and uh, really up there in the world. In terms of prenatal diagnosis, there is something called non-invasive prenatal testing. Um, it seems futuristic, but really it's reality now. We can actually take the mom's blood, just a regular blood draw, and find uh, the baby's DNA uh, while she's pregnant, even only 10 weeks or 11 weeks pregnant, early in pregnancy, and test to see if the baby has important issues such as Down syndrome or other aneuploidies. And a recent study that just came out last month by Dr. Norton, Dr. Wapner, and colleagues uh, showed that that test is not good just for high-risk women, but it's actually good for all women. Mm-hmm. The test we have before had a lot of what's called false positives results. So we were labeling a lot of women high risk. Your baby may have Down syndrome. We don't know. 
you may have an amniocentesis or CVS, but those tests are not completely safe. Now with these new non-invasive uh, prenatal tests, we actually can pinpoint exactly which one have it and which ones don't. The false positive rate is like less than one in a thousand, it's extremely low compared to 5% in the past. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that I see as a great advancement for the woman who wants to have prenatal diagnosis. Obviously not everybody may want it, but the fact that we have a test that is safer for women, it's a big advancement. This would be cell-free DNA-based technology? Cell-free DNA-based technology, which again, that right now it's a little expensive, but more and more insurances are covering. Uh, they're covering already for, the, for example, women over 30, 35 years old or, or more. But as this study roll out, I believe that insurances will pay for everybody to have the test because it's so much uh, more precise. And eventually, if you save invasive procedures, if you save some babies from complications they shouldn't have had, probably be cost-effective as well. I see. Do they, they don't render moot the other gold standard more invasive tests, do they? Uh, do, they do they potentially uh, render them obsolete? They kind of do. They kind of do, which is a big change in our field because actually, you know, we make money from amniocentesis and, and CVSs. But if we don't need to do them, you know, if there are better tests, I'm all for, for this major step forward. And eventually, and this is obviously the... the uh, uh, apple in the sky or, 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 or the, 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 the near future, um, not only you be able to test for Down syndrome or other aneuploidy, but you may be able to test for the whole genome. Actually, not too recently, a couple of years ago, somebody published a study that, again, from the mother's serum, they were able to test the whole genome of the baby. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine the whole genome? So that raises ethical issues, uh, you know, how much you want to know. But the technology is, is, is uh, coming soon at us, and we have to be prepared to use it um, in the best way to help the mother and the baby. And I believe you also wanted to speak a little bit to uh, preterm birth, an area of strong interest for you. Yeah, so in the U.S., as I said before, we have uh, 4 million births, um, and still about 11.5% are preterm, so almost 500,000. And in the world, actually, over a million babies die every year from being born too early. That's a baby dying or being born too early every 30 seconds. It's amazing, and it's, it's a humongous um, amount. Ten years ago, I used to listen to talks all the time, you know, we don't know what to do, the rates are going up. Actually, the rates in the U.S. have been going down the last six years. Uh, they went down 10%. And there are many reasons for this. Um, one of them, for example, is related to the fact that there are less uh, multiple gestations from uh, assisted reproductive technologies, like from IVF, and stimulation of the ovaries. But one of the things that, that I think as maternal fetal medicine specialists we've been able to, um, to do is find a much better predictive test uh, to, to, again, predict uh, the women who are going to deliver preterm versus the ones that will not and don't need any therapy. And cervical lens screening has been such an advance. Um, it's a good predictive test. And now there are many randomized studies that show that are actually interventions uh, that you can uh, implement once you find a short cervix. Um, and the ones that I would like to highlight briefly are if you are a low-risk patient carrying a singleton gestation and you never had a prior early birth, preterm birth, you can actually have one of these transvaginal ultrasound cervical lengths at around 20 weeks. And if the cervix is short, vaginal progesterone seems to prevent about 45% of preterm births that would otherwise subsequently occur. And that's the majority of patients that eventually deliver uh, preterm. And in terms of high-risk patients, so singleton with a prior preterm birth, we've seen that giving them all progesterone decreases preterm birth incidence in general. 
And if you also do actually a few cervical lens ultrasound between 16 and 24 weeks, uh, if you place a cerclage, that also decreases the incidence of preterm birth by about 30% and the incidence of the baby dying or being very sick of morbidity or mortality by about 36%. So we finally have algorithms that are evidence-based, uh, that are both supported by the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine and by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. And I think all of these better evidence, algorithm, guidelines, research has led to the 10% decrease in preterm birth we just talked about. Well, with that, uh, we've run out of time. I wish we had more time to be able to, to talk to you about this. We've covered an extraordinary gamut of subjects within OBGYN and beyond. And I very much want to thank Dr. Vincenzo Brighella, President of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine and Professor of OBGYN at Thomas Jefferson University School of Medicine. Again, Dr. Brighella, thanks so much for your time. It's been great. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and you've been listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For access to this podcast or any others in our library, please visit ReachMD.com. And thank you for listening.